0: For more information, visit www.novic.co. Now, let's jump into the episode.
1: Greetings, citizens. Welcome to the Novic Gaming Podcast. I'm your host, Alex DeKay, and this is the interview and insight segment, which is part of a broader Novic Gaming ecosystem. Today, I'm super excited to have Matt Reschetti, the president of Network Studios, the spun-out arm of Network Inc., the studio behind Legendary Game of Heroes. Matt, feel free to jump in and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe Network Studios first came to be, after Forte, a back-end infrastructure tool for game blockchain game development, acquired Network Inc. in an acquisition in early 2022.
2: Yes, I can give you. I, I feel like when I talk to people about network studios, the first question is kind of explaining the the deal that went down at the end of 2021, early 22. Uh, and it is Matt Ricketti, by the way. Oh, Matt Ricketti.
1: Sorry. I get
2: a lot of Richetti, Richetti, Ricchetti, It's all. I
1: it's feel all, the same way. My name cool. is impossible. I get Tacky, <laughs> Takai. and then they don't even finish it because they're nervous.
2: A lot lot of directions.
1: Uh, A lot of directions. So I apologize and empathize with knowing what that's like. (laughs) Yeah, so Network
2: Inc. um, made the decision to... Network Inc., I was going to say we. I was part of Network Inc. before I was part of Network Studios. So we chose to sell our platform business, including about a half the company. So we were 100 people. 50 people in our platform tech went over to Forte, uh, and then the other 50 plus folks were spun out into network studios. And that's the company that, that I now run as, as president. Um, you know, so we have, you know, like a, a back license to all the platform tech that we sold to Forte cause that's our, our analytics system and all that stuff is, is part of that. Um, so, you know, I think some people have, have said, Oh, Forte acquired you. That's not true. You know, we, sold half the business as Network Inc. to Forte. Network Studios is a totally separate company. We have our own cap table, our own board, everything. Um, we work closely with Forte right now on uh, Legendary Heroes Unchained, one of our two upcoming blockchain games. But, um, you know, otherwise we're a fully independent company. Awesome.
1: Yeah, and so I think, like, you know, that your mission so far is to take some of the great mobile IP that you had in Network Inc. and pivot the studio to Web3 Focus. Um you know, I know that you've had a stellar career in games. Like your background is like mobile gaming's greatest hits. Um, and prior to Network, you know, you were president of studios at Glue, and you came up through the producer track at Kabam and Zynga and EA. So, I, you know, I want to say thank first, thank you for joining me and gracing me with your presence twice in one week. Um, it was great to have you on campus uh, the other day. Um, for the audience, I basically cajoled Matt into coming to Stanford so he could be pestered by a group of overzealous and overeager Stanford Web3 um, technocrats. So uh, Technocrat <laughs> he, was, he was on for Yes. <laughs> no, that, was, that was a lot of fun. And I, I'm the um, kind of person,
2: People loved you. Oh, thank you. I, I'm the kind of person who tends to get heads down in, in the business, but I really love teaching and, and, and speaking. Uh, and I wish I'd did more of it so that's a great thank you for kind of twisting my arm to get me to get me down there and I had a lot of fun
0: but yeah in terms oh. of my
2: background um man I've been in free to play for 20 years now which we were talking uh on Monday you know it was kind of the early days of free to play so I started I kind of went through a twisty career where I was a a Chinese philosophy major and then got into translation and then editing, graphic design, web design, and got a job finally at at EA. I was, you know, I'm a hardcore gamer from a young age and kind of grew up with the invention of like home console gaming and arcades and all that stuff. So I took to it really, you know, computers and gaming as, as, as a kid and got really into like dungeons and dragons and building my own adventures and all that stuff. So I didn't, I not I didn't realize that there were careers in doing things like product management and production. You know, I've always been kind of a generalist, so it's been very, uh, gratifying to know that you can make a career as someone who is, you know, a generalist as a, I, I like to dabble in, in lots of different things. So anyway, like, You know, my career has really been defined by the growth of free-to-play. I got in early at Pogo.com. And maybe some people know it, some people don't, but it was, you know, in the early 2000s was a $100 million business built off of subscriptions and microtransactions. And it was funny, it's kind of opposite of the traditional free-to-play. Like you had to have a subscription before you could buy microtransactions because there was no real way to get people's credit cards other than getting them signed up for a subscription. And And then it's like, okay, now we can sell you Other stuff, but we had a um, you know an avatar system and a number of like kind of Microsoft uh, Xbox Live achievements type of uh, um, microtransactions there, and you know kind of set the stage like that was pre pre mobile, pre Facebook gaming, pre World of Warcraft, all that stuff. Um, So I was really when we looked around for examples of free to play gaming, it was like looking at China, Japan, Korea, and the rise of free to play there. Um, and that, you know, I, I kind of mentioned I had a little bit of background in, in, in Chinese philosophy from college and spent some time living in Taiwan and mainland China. So that all altogether was really formative for me in kind of the rise of this new business model. And a, a lot of my career was sort of riding that wave through PM and design roles into executive roles the last decade or so at um, Kabam and Glue and Perblue, uh, and now Network Studios. But I think the, the lens through which I view a lot of Web3 now is this similar lens of like brand new business model, you know, sort of lots of potential, potentially disruptive, but a lot of people either not understanding it or seeing sort of the, you know, the negative aspects of it. You know, it can be free to play was perceived as kind of mercenary and, and, and you know, the sort of pay to win aspects of free to play were, were hurdles that had to be overcome for the, the model to become more widespread. And there was, you know, like a whole period of going from pretty niche games to, you know, billion dollar, you know, multi-billion dollar sure. success cases in, in the app stores. And, you know, I'm kind of optimistic that the same journey is out there for Web3 and that we're, you know, we just have to have the long-term view on it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I think this is like a perfect segue to to sort of jump into to network then specifically. But before we start, like, did you guys always have the three in network or did you like as a... Or is it like a passive web three signaling? Did you change it from network with an E to network with a three later? Or did you guys like... Oh, or maybe it was like an ar- augury of what was always intended to happen to you guys in a way.
2: Yeah, yeah, maybe maybe it was a real uh, an augury. Uh, I it, the the three kind of precedes me as a member of of Network Inc and Network Studios. That's but funny. We did have the conversation when we you know we we did a kind of a branding uh, redesign for Network Studios, which you can see on my my jacket here if you're watching on video. Um, but we debated on whether to leave the three in, and that was a reason we did leave it in is because it, you know Web three. Uh, so it's just a little part of the name, but strategy wise. Yeah. Um, I'm super happy to have a chance to talk about the studio. It's, it's really exciting. You know, we, I said, we started at about 50 people. We're around 75 now we're fully remote. So we have a lot of presence on the West coast of the U S but also in South America and in the UK, um, and in other parts of the U S we're, we're really embracing, the what the pandemic has, has given us in terms of remote work. Uh, um, we have So we have three teams. One team is Legendary Game of Heroes. That game's grossed over $300 million uh, in its lifetime and has really been like the driver of the studio. And it's where a lot of our kind of expertise and orientation comes from. So, you know, it's a match three squad RPG. Um, so both of our Web3 games are also squad RPGs. Uh, and, you know, we're looking at the space. We kind of have these like four insights or pillars that we've organized our two games around um, which are you know we're we're focused on squad rpgs and i'll talk more about each of these uh if, if if you find it interesting alex and feel free to ask me more questions but we're focused on squad rpgs um free to own mints is kind of another pillar of especially getting our products off the ground and then the other two pieces are around tokenizing guild play and doing that through a what we're calling a compete-to-earn token. So just to start on the, I think there's a lot to unpack there, but the, the first piece on Squad RPGs, is like, we have a decade of experience working on Squad RPGs, you know, with the kind of core Network Studios team. And then we brought in some new folks as well who uh, have that orientation. And I think it's a great... So what I mean by Squad RPG is the, the kind of, you know, the classic mobile um hero collector game it's a kind of game that i've worked on a lot myself in the past particularly at perblue uh but it's you know marvel strike force star wars galaxy of heroes raid shadow legends afk arena hero wars idol you know there's there's a number of games that have crossed you know the multi million uh, 100 million dollar threshold if not the billion dollar threshold in that space so it feels like a genre that's kind of like forex strategy has been for mobile it, it just fits free to play and mobile really well um, because it's very accessible to pick up and play. The battles are quick and easy. You know, there's a lot of auto battling and kind of like, you know, three X speed or whatever, and, and you cruise through battles. And for the player, what's interesting is the the overall kind of investment in your portfolio of heroes. And, and there are a lot of different kind of currencies and metagame progression vectors in these games. You know, you've got runes and gear and crafting and, Um, and obviously there's a lot of guild play that goes along with that and the guild itself can have progression. So I think all that stuff lends itself super well to web three. Like when you think about web three, you think about tokenizing and when you're thinking about tokenizing well, you need things to tokenize. So you need a game that has a lot of meat in terms of progression Mm -hmm. and kind of, um, you know, relatively complex economies. Um, so I think, you know, the gamers that play squad RPGs, are pretty used to a lot of that. And, you know, we're trying to find, I think like many people in the space right now, you know, where's the growth going to come from? Um, the web three space is really fascinating and the people that are in it are super dedicated, but it's still teeny, teeny, you know, we're talking about thousands of daily active wallets or users in, you know, one of the, in, in the top games in the space versus, you know, millions of DAU and in a, in a top grossing RPG. So the there's orders of magnitude in that, in that gap that we need to bridge as, as an industry. Uh, And I think, you know, it's much more likely that mobile gamers who are used to, like I said, these economies and, and this sort of a la carte kind of purchasing practice uh, and, you know, games as a service and live ops are, are, are more likely to kind of migrate towards these, you know, whether it's web 2.5 games or web three games that, that feel familiar to them, you know, versus console or PC gamers who you know, th- those industries have changed a lot too, but they still are kind of dominated by, you know, pay once and, you know, maybe, maybe interact with some DLC. So it's, I think it's a bigger kind of cognitive hurdle to get over for those gamers. And we've seen some more kind of resistance in those spaces for around web three right now. So that's kind of a lot of the background that why we feel like squad RPG, you know, I mentioned a lot of the games, but it's, the second biggest mid-core um, genre after uh, strategy sure. on mobile, and probably the third overall biggest genre. After, you know, if you include puzzle, it's a multi-billion-dollar space. So, you know, I think it can be a multi-billion-dollar space in Web three as well.
1: Right. And I, mean, I guess what mm-hmm. I'm pulling out of this is that there's just a lot. You're basically just trying to pull out a lot of incremental innovations and figure out. You know, mm-hmm. when you're looking for product market fit, like who is the market that is going to be most likely to adopt this? Right. And from that, I'm hearing you know mobile. Free to play um, specific types of genres with specific kinds of economies that players are used to that won't be this like gigantic difference between like what they're already expecting, right? Like, if you didn't have, if you're building a game with no crafting system, then you're not building a system of ERC20 tokens that are interacting with the blockchain Mm -hmm. um, and that. Behavior is not habituated already in the audience that you're that you're serving to. So I think right. it's a very interesting and like I guess like smart take on okay. Well, where where would blockchain players like most likely to be if we had to basically pattern match habituated gaming behavior? And that certainly might be like in a hero collectible mobile game. And so there was obviously a ton to unpack there, and I'd love mm-hmm. to like dive in more. Dive in more. But I think one of the questions that I definitely still have is you know why even why you even have bothered with Web3, given that you guys already had successful games before, right? I think like unlike some of the other studios that we usually have on the podcast that are building new Web3 studios from scratch, you mm-hmm. guys are kind of pivoting mm-hmm. from a web two world to web three. So, you know, you had successful games with legendary heroes unchained. You know, what's gonna happen to the old games? And sort of what did you are was this more of a offensive? Move to sort of say like okay I think we can do this. Um, just walk me through that process before we dive into the free to own and the loyalty passes and the compete to earn.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question, and it's something that you know, I think it's a good question for free to play studios in the space to continue to ask themselves. You know, are you are you in the space for the right reasons? Um, and the space is so nascent that you know I think that it's 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 kind of a shifting landscape. But um, for us. You know, I think kind of on the external market conditions, you know, uh, perspective, like free to play gaming has changed a lot in you know the 20 years that I've been in and especially the last, I would say, five to 10 years. We've seen a lot of consolidation. We've seen user acquisition become a very different kind of game and experience, especially for small studios. Like personally, I've always gravitated, not always, but I, I would say more recently gravitated to small studios because I like, you know, being entrepreneurial, being innovative, being collaborative. Um, and I think as a small studio and free to play, it's, it's just gotten very, very difficult to achieve scale on the, the marketing side. Um, and then, you know, the, the cost of making games has, has, has gone up. Um, and so the size of teams and the cost structures you need to be successful and in free to play as a small studio is very difficult. And I think that's, you know kind of why we've seen a lot of consolidation for the for the small studios it made sense to partner up with bigger studios and those economies of scale they have particularly around marketing and then for the bigger studios you know it's kind of the innovator's dilemma where you know you you reach scale and you know there there's always been this kind of big split in gaming and I guess you could say particularly free to play around being an operator versus a builder like being an operator is a whole set of different skills than being a builder and you know as you become a bigger game that's kind of inherently, if you're going to have revenue, you're managing live games, right? So it it becomes the innovators dilemma is around how do you also build? And I think a lot of companies have found it easier to grow inorganically, you know, to um, acquire smaller companies and and bring new genres uh, in. So that's kind of like the free-to-play landscape. So I think there's an element there where uh, smaller free-to-play developers and and entrepreneurial free-to-play developers are saying, rather than trying to compete in this like super red ocean, there is a more blue ocean space in, mm. in web three. Um, particularly last year, that was a much easier argument to make. And I think now it's more of, do you have that long-term conviction? So the, you know, there's the external marketing conditions. And then personally, I just, I have like a, a depth of belief in the long-term uh, kind of inevitability of digital ownership, right? Like, you were asking me about the guitar that's that's sitting behind me. And I like to use it as an example of, you know, as a hobbyist musician, you're always kind of buying and selling gear, right? And in, in the physical world, you can do things like, you know, do I want to have another bass guitar or another drum set and kind of have a collection and I play different ones for different types of songs and different reasons and I show them off, or do I sell the one I have because I want to buy a better one and you know, I don't have all the money right now to buy too, so I, you know, use the proceeds from that, or do I give it as a gift to a friend? Cause I want to get them involved into, into playing music or playing together. You know, I think all those things are very analogous to our digital lifestyles. And I think the pandemic has kind of accelerated a lot of that process where we're living more and more online and we're interacting with digital goods more than ever. And I think those things together are bringing new expectations for users of digital goods to have kind of parity with the physical world which is that, and that's where the ownership comes in. It's like, this is my good. If I want to trade it, sell it, you know, do whatever to it, transform it somehow, I have the control over that. So I think, you know, having been in the game industry long enough and, and, and you know, spent thousands and thousands of dollars as a player in free-to-play and also operated games where I've, I've seen players, you know, treat their free-to-play game like a true hobby, it, I want to I see those hobbies be uh, hobbyists, be fully enabled to be owners, you know, and controllers of their hobby. Um, So I think at some level that's inevitable, right. Um, And obviously it's a tough market right now, but I I think you have to have that, that conviction long-term to kind of, you know, everybody says like bear markets are when the, you know, the, the, the successful companies are built. So, you know, you have to, you have to kind of be, be into that right now to, (laughs) <laughs> to get through sure. the next. So
1: years. for you guys, it was basically like, look, like we know that we can get on the front foot here, and so we're going to go out here and take a stab at attacking a market that has get it's been underserved. So for right. you guys, it's very much a offensive move versus yeah. a defensive. Oh, if we don't pivot we won't survive situation, which is, I think, a little bit of a, something, a distinction between someone building it from scratch versus, I think, I've, I've talked to a lot of founders mm. who kind of just threw Web3 in their deck to just, and then pray, right? And so I'm going to cheat a little bit. a because, little bit with AI right now, right? There's always a shiny yes. new thing.
0: That,
1: <laughs> the thing that, uh, um Yes, exactly. And so it's like, are you building this Web3 game for the right reasons or are you building this Web3 game because Web3 is inherently fundable or AI is inherently fundable? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm going to cheat a little bit because you just gave me a presentation. I know that in order to go out on this offensive move, you guys are planning to build two games, you know, one utilizing the Legendary Heroes IP and the other um, building a new IP. um, Mm -hmm. And I would love for you to tell me a little bit about, you know, like why build two games at the same time? We talked a little bit about like the four strategies they're connected to, the squad Mm -hmm. RPGs, the compete to own, the free to own. And some of the, like the guilds and loyalty passes, but you know why? Why two games? What are they meant to be targeting, um, et cetera. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, just to go
2: back and kind of tie a bow on the last point. Um, so it's a bit, you know, I was talking about how the market conditions, uh, personal conviction of me, um, people like Neil, who's the executive chairman of the board and the one of the founders of Network Inc., who you know put this whole deal together to to create Network, network Studios. Um, But then there's also just being really honest with yourself about what are your skills and your specializations. And that's where we kind of go back to making RPGs, you know, making game as a service squad RPGs. That's the studio has been doing that for decades. I've been doing that for a long time. I think there are many ways to kind of approach the Web3 space. And I think it's certainly just as legitimate to come from it without any sort of, you know, as much as knowing a lot about free to play can be an advantage, it can, there's a lot of baggage there too about how things have been done in the past. So um I think we're we're going to be hopefully, you know, leveraging everything that we know to to have success in this space. And it's gonna be a lot of knowledge share between folks like us who are coming at it from the free-to-play angle versus people who are gonna have like we saw this in the early free-to-play days, the the brand new free-to-play startups who had kind of no tether to the pre-free-to-play gaming business models were often the most innovative, and I'm sure there are going to be success success cases in that space too. But anyway, okay, to go to the games, um, you know, as a small studio, you don't have an opportunity to have a, a ten product portfolio approach. So for us, two products is kind of gives us a little bit of a portfolio play in the sense of Legendary Heroes Unchained is a pure web three game in the sense that, uh, all the heroes, the gear are all going to be NFTs. The game's kind of targeted towards a crypto audience. Um, and we feel like, you know, if we want to be legitimate in this space, we need to understand that audience. Well, uh, understand what appeals to them and be able to build games that that audience is going to, are going to enjoy and invest in. And on the other side, triumph, which is our new IP. Uh, so a lot of the, the, the leaders and builders of legendary game of heroes went over to triumph and this was kind of like, okay, you built a highly successful, uh, free to play RPG. What's, what's like your dream next game that you, that you'd want to make. And that's, that's what triumph is. But because we had it in the works for a while, we were thinking about, you know, what makes the best, we wanted to kind of authentically move into web three as a whole studio. What's the best application of that? uh, vis-a-vis triumph, you know, is it, it, it felt like kind of forcing the game, uh, uh, to kind of turn on its head and be an entirely web three from the ground up, uh, didn't quite make sense. And that there, and then also, again, there's kind of like the internal external externally. I think there's a big opportunity for this kind of web 2.5 play. And we've, I think that's become even more viable as, as the markets shifted, right? Like, you know, last year, it was kind of Web3 or bust. And now people are kind of more sanguine about, okay, we've got a ways to go. We've got to build the market. We need to make sure we're appealing to people outside the Web3 space as well. So Triumph's strategy is the economy is heroes and gear. It's all IAP-based, but we're layering some Web3 systems on top of it. And and again, trying to not do it in a way where it just feels grafted on, but that it's really a holistic game economy but doing, making sure that those things that are being layered on, like the assets that can be earned in Triumph, so it's going to be things like cosmetic NFTs, tokenized guilds, a loyalty pass that, that will be an NFT for Triumph. Those are all things that players can earn. Um, we're not looking to come out of the gate and say, hey, we're going to sell you a bunch of, of NFTs. It's like, just play the game. You know, you'll have an organic experience, you get exposed to Web3, and then, you know, you'll, you'll be able to trade on the secondary market and do things like cash out and, and own your assets. Um, but the idea is to kind of bring people in gradually, um, you know, and if, if the game sees success, we can lean more into the Web3 parts of it.
1: Got it. So you got one game serving degens, which I think is gonna look very <laughs> similar to a lot of the games that we've already seen. This is like your crypto raiders, your right. like Axi Infinities, where like Web3 is, is native to the onboarding process. And then you've kind of got this like hybrid web two point five where you can engage with this system or not, but we're kind of going to educate you into the system. And then we're going to offer things that are more standard to like the mobile free-to-play space, yeah. like loyalty passes, et cetera. Um, I would love to dive a little bit deeper into this um into like the live op monetization that you're planning for triumph i think um the legendary heroes unchained is probably more similar to a lot of the web generation one and generation two games that are being built but -hmm. i think like strategically and incrementally implementing web three is um has a variety of like people are taking a stab at it in a variety of ways um i would love to learn a little bit more about like the tokenized guilds and and the tech trees that you guys were talking about um on campus the other day. I think those are really interesting and I think cases of monetization tools that I haven't heard about yet.
2: Yeah, so we, we kind of went through this process over, you know, you start a new studio and there's a lot to do in terms of just hiring and logistics and operations and getting every, everything off the ground. And I think we had this general split between a Web 2.5 and a Web 3 title pretty early on. But, you know, this the space evolves very rapidly and we were kind of asking ourselves like, what's the right way to tokenize an RPG? And there aren't a lot of examples out there. You know, I think I've seen some really good... I was looking at examples like, um, you know, Shrapnel was one. It's another uh, uh, portfolio uh, investment for Griffin Gaming Partners. Yeah, uh, that's actually super...
1: Super yeah. funny. I discovered Web3 because of Don Norberry, their CTO. Okay. Um, he's a friend of a friend of the indie studio that I was at mm-hmm. on the engineering side. And I had like a meet and greet with him. And then he was like, yeah, I'm building this Web3 thing. And I was like, what's Web3? And that's actually like how I legitimately discovered oh, Web3 the topic. Oh. Yeah, which is just... And very very interesting that it's like now like here's a huge player of like an anticipated like extraction Web three shooter. And At the time, I was like, mm, I don't really know what they're building. That's cool. Um, sorry, I interrupted I mean, you. I've been a
0: consumer
2: of all their kind of materials, including their white paper. I think their presentation and the way that they communicate about approaching Web three is very thoughtful. And so, like that that model, you know, just kind of looking at models that I was seeing multiple examples of the same model of. So one, this the shrapnel example is is UGC, right? I think yeah. there's a, a real good argument for UGC and Web three fitting together. Right? This idea of you know NFT and creator royalties are something we've seen in, in the art space. If you can make UGC for a game, so something that's kind of a piece of art, but also has mechanical utility in the game, um, that's all the better. And if you can build a whole game around that, then you've you, you've got this interesting set of roles you know between creators and and purchasers and owners um and, and shrapnel does that with you know there's not only skins that are cosmetic things but also maps and i i just would recommend people reading about how they're planning to ugc around maps um, as a really good example of like nfts that have you know in-game mechanical impact and then another model i think i've, I've seen a number of examples of in the web3 space is the sort of enter a tournament and use a token to get into the tournament to win more of the token. And it's, you know, using a token as an entropy and taking a rake. And that's been something that's been done with cash on the, you know, in mobile and other, totally. other, other yeah. platforms, but it just, it just fits really naturally in, in, you know, like, so, so rare does that skyweaver does that. And I was like, well, none of these are RPG games and like we don't really like we could go the tournament route and be very competitive but that's not the squad rpg right there there are skill-based rpgs that are that are more about you know the twitchy tactical gameplay um maybe champions is is going to be an example of a game like that um but it's not really like our bread and butter and on the ugc side i think there's maybe some opportunities but um, Guild of Guardians, I think, is a good example where they're sort of the way they've structured their guilds and then the crafting of all the individual members of the guilds feels like UGC. You know, you're not really making something brand new, you're making something like within the parameters of the game, but you're doing it in a collective way and then ultimately tokenizing those, those kind of um individual components that get crafted into gear. Um, so for us, we kind of landed on guilds, you know, like. Guild play has always been the heart of any RPG that I've been involved with. And it's certainly the thing that keeps me engaged in an RPG for months and years on end. And I think it's a lot of great research, you know, that I've done on games that I've worked on and also read that shows that, you know, players who join guilds are more likely to stick around, they're more likely to pay, they're they're very likely to stick around, you know, not just in the early retention phase, but in the late, late retention phase. So Guilds is kind of where everything comes together in terms of the community social experience, you know, and people always refer to web three as community economics. So like we want to bring the tokenization to the community. So what we're thinking about doing is um, having a research tree, just a standard sort of research tech tree, like think about civilization or any kind of uh, game that has a tech tree in a guild. And it's not a, rocket science you know new feature i think there are rpgs and free-to-play out there that have tech trees of, of various types the difference though is that there will be either paths or nodes within the tech tree that can only be upgraded through uh spending a project token a fungible token so we'd have like a triumph token and an lhu token uh the way you'd get that token is strictly through leaderboard position so you know, I think we've all kind of learned that anything where the token, uh, payouts kind of scale off of the user base or the number of users participating is incredibly inflationary. And we want to avoid that. Um, I think like some of the competitive tournament based systems that I mentioned in other games are good examples of ways people have been effectively avoiding that. So we would, we would use, you know, you have to be good. So there's, there's a, there's, even though there's it's a squad RPG and getting good heroes is a function of both of skill and, and, and paying, you know, there is a, that's, that's the compete to own part. You've got to, you've got to win. You've got to be dedicated. you got to put time. It's a mix of time, skill, and, you know, potentially um, investment of, of money or, or whatever uh, to do well in these events. And then you can earn a limited amount of tokens. And that allows us to kind of, you know, on a seasonal basis, figure out what the appropriate token distribution should be to the player base. And as the player base grows and sinks, we can kind of keep the, the token distribution in, in tune with the players and kind of prevent runaway inflation. And then the players will, there's kind of an intermediate step here. So we, we w- work staking into the games by saying, okay, you're going to stake your project token for a certain amount of time. We have to kind of figure out the details, but you know, let's say it's the whole season. So you stake your tokens for the season when the stake, your, those tokens are locked up when the season's over, your tokens will spit out a number of research points for your guild tech tree. And the more tokens you stake, the more research points you get. Uh, and then you can tri- mm. so the interesting part in the economy is that a player can then decide do I want to contribute, you know, uh, my tokens, stake my tokens to the guild specifically or am I kind yeah, of... Yeah, for the
1: greater controlling- whole for the good of the guild or for myself. Right? I love right. this, yeah. So it's like very similar to that. like yeah. sinking and stuff in Diablo seasons, and kind of knowing that at the end of this, like we're gonna either get some material output that will help us, like in the next in the next journey, um, right. which is fascinating. So, like if for Shrapnel, their killer use case is UGC, for you guys, your killer use case is like this um, unit your guilds like your, your 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 homies and your army basically being able to progress more rapidly through a tech tree which would ostensibly give you some sort of actual play advantage exactly right? yep um, interesting interesting
2: yeah and there's you know there's kind of endless ways we could design and sort of skin the cat when it comes to the tech tree you know you can have like oh your fire heroes are more powerful or you earn more currency from a mode so there can be kind of you know combat benefits economy benefits more sort of VIP-style convenience benefits where you can just play the game quicker, easier. Um, And then there can also be kind of seasonal benefits that are more consumable, right? Like ultimately, I think things become more sustainable when there's almost like a battle pass style rhythm of earning tokens and syncing those into benefits that are going to allow you to perform better in the specific season and whatever kind of mechanics the season is themed around. But those benefits will then either wear off or just not really be as relevant right. for the next season. Mm-hmm. So that you know this tech tree is not a finite tree; it's something that grows over time and becomes has a, a live ops cadence to it that uh, goes uh-huh. hand in hand with. Just, so there's sort of an input and an output, right? That the the input is you you do this seasonal event, you earn the token, then you invest it in the seasonal benefits for the next season, right? Because there's the lag with the staking, um, and it becomes this virtuous circle that is hopefully fun and it's intentionally designed for you know more elder players like there will be a significant portion of the tech tree that's also an off-chain investment for everyone in the game that you know an advantage of being in a guild will be you know you don't have to be a big whale or whatever you can get in a guild and you know be kind of lower on the totem pole but still take advantage of the tech tree bonuses that that the guild
1: is offering sure Um, so yeah this is It's just like very interesting that it's like a combination of like what we often do in free to play and mobile Mm -hmm. games, which is basically like sunset stuff that people bought to make it totally and utterly useless. So people have to buy new stuff again. And so I'm actually going to maybe ask you a tougher question. And I'm stealing actually from a very astute classmate who made this great. uh, Twitter post actually, actually, actually after you left the other day she wrote okay. um, Web3 gaming companies are at the risk of seeing themselves repeat the centralized WoW soul siphon nerf that Vitalik so hated the alternative for most is to let their game meta be set in stone which hardly feels viable what is the yes. middle ground and has anybody cracked this so <laughs> respond um, <laughs> what's, the cross, what's the
2: crossfire thing they used Dana Carvey used to do that on Saturday Night Live <laughs> discuss uh, yeah and that, that I don't know if that was the same person that asked that question when it we is yeah it was a great question because you know free to play often depends heavily on power creep right there's so whether the content obsolescence is kind of implicit or explicit it, it happens either way and in games that tend to be more aggressive on the monetization side there can be a very explicit like oh the new heroes that come out or the new whatever that comes out is just clearly more powerful than the stuff in the past. And I think free-to-play developers, you know, kind of live in that space of, like, how much power creep do we want and how do we kind of work with with players to make it something that's palatable? Um, and there are parts of that... Yeah, I think done well, it can be a very... Um, there can be a good partnership with the community, but done poorly or, you know, with not the right intentions, it can be pretty painful and shitty and not very fun. Um, so I don't know. I, I have mixed feelings on power creep. I think power creep is definitely going to be harder in the web three space. Like the last thing you want to do is sell people stuff and then undermine its value, you know, within a, any kind of like near term amount of time, that's not going to feel good. You know, and I think games like magic or Pokemon or whatever all kind of live in that space. And they found other ways, you know, magic has lots of different formats and they, you know, move people through different card blocks, um, in, you know, in the tournament, uh, um, Setups so that you know they they kind of have a more you know explicit hard wall of obsolescence, but it's 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 about recency rather than about power, right? Um, and for some people that can be hard to swallow, right? Like, I do see people mm-hmm. complain about like if the acceleration of releases, you know, happens you get so fast, get high enough, yeah, then people are like, ah, oh, shit, I can't keep up with all these new cards that are coming out. There, you, there are pros and cons, you know, to any system that you adopt. Um, but i think my th- my real answer to that question is that no matter what kind of game you operate you need to have a really strong relationship with your community you need to be like i'm a big fan of you got to put out really detailed patch notes about every hero that comes into the game and every change to the way the combat system works like you want your players to really understand what the meta is and why because i think if you do that players will come along with you on a journey like people don't generally want to play a game you know whether it's league of legends or it's you know, Disney Heroes Battle Mode, which is a game I worked on at, at Per Blue, um, they don't want a static meta. They want the game to feel alive and fresh and they want reasons to, you know, employ their new heroes because the heroes are fun and they're cool and they're collectible and you, you have a, an emotional attachment to them. Um, so, you know, the thoughtful way of doing that is saying, hey, you know, not just, oh, we're nerfing this hero because it's too powerful, but, you know, uh, let's an example might be uh, we think shielding is too powerful overall in the combat, and this hero is kind of an example of shielding. And what happens when shielding dominates the metagame is that combat's really slow and sluggish, and you just sit there and watch none of the. Day. You know, it's like, is that fun for people? And that's usually what happens, right? It's like that as a developer, you're trying to keep everything as balanced as possible, but inevitably you, you know, you release something that's a little OP in one way or another, mm-hmm. uh, and players are like, yeah, we don't like all this shielding, so like let's let's have a dialogue about like what would make combat better with the players. And that's where you, you get into things like, Oh, we're going to have shield breakers. You know, we're not just going to nerf your hero. We're going to have a new hero that comes out. That's a shield breaker or, you know, what have you, that's just a kind of random example. But I think that's always been the way to solve that stuff. And I think you can do that in, in web three just as effectively. Um, so something like the guild research system would have to be, you know, kind of adaptable and be in a dialogue with players. Um, and then I think, you know, Web3 offers the opportunity to kind of formalize that dialogue in a lot of different ways, whether it's through a governance token or a formal DAO. And those are things we're interested in. But I think the hurdle of just having a fun and exciting Web3 game is such a big one. And it's so difficult, even when you have full control over a game to make something that's good, that we want to start there first. And then if we can right. do that, we kind of over time you know, find ways to give players more, like, you own the loyalty pass, we're going to invite you into this conversation and then this conversation.
1: Yeah. yeah, and I think it's also interesting because, you know, like, your, your players are obviously your community and your partners. But it's almost like presumptive to think that anybody would like want to be in a DAO for your <laughs> game because you don't even know if right, your right, game right, is yeah. good, right? I think this. I think UGC struggles with the same problem where it's like, oh, well, like, should I build Overwatch Workshop? Because we don't even know if the base game of Overwatch is going to be popular, right? And so it's right. almost like this chicken and egg cycle where it's like, you know, Maybe someone would join if you had a DAO, but maybe like building, building, putting all that energy into building a DAO is actually like totally not the wrong, right thing to be focusing right. on because like fundamentally, like your game is not fun, and so um, yeah. you know that's where you should put your efforts. But I think it's it's very interesting the way that you guys are ordering and, and thinking about it, and thinking about your your players as as partners. Um, and and in that right. regard, you know, I also you know want to talk about. You know, you have your players as your partners, right? In terms of maybe developing and um, adding to like what maybe the meta might be, but you also have another partner, um, Forte specifically, uh, which mm, we mentioned yeah. very in the, at the beginning of this conversation, which is basically a back-end, you know, infrastructure tool. And I'd love for you to share a little, a little bit more about your relationship with Forte and the value that they provide. I think a lot of Web three developers are struggling with like, okay, there's like the game part, but then there's like all the blockchain stuff, right? Yeah, so. What's what's that been like? How's the relationship? Um, what do what services do they provide? How do you guys work together?
2: Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, yeah, so I think the real value proposition of Forte is exactly that. You know, and Forte isn't isn't the only, and they'll tell you this too. They're not the only one out there, and they're trying to, you know, earn customers based on the quality of what they're building, just like anyone else. It's a very fragmented space, and there's a lot of choices for game developers about chains and. You know where to mint and uh, everything in between, wallets and everything else. But but Forte's uh, main value proposition is that we can focus on building the games; they focus on the blockchain aspect, so that it's kind of a plug and play situation for us. Um, and the the, the main um, features or services they provide are a wallet, a custodial wallet, um, a chain. So their chains are uh, EVM on cosmos which is also referred to as fmos you know so they're on mainnet they're on ethereum which is you know where you got to be for for gaming i think and still the probably the long-term play I, i'd love to see you know all the fragmentation to kind of uh disappear over time and things to converge towards ethereum um so the chain, the wallet uh, payments. So both fiat in, fiat out, crypto in, crypto out. Mm-hmm. And then kind of like the APIs and the orchestration layer to tie all that stuff together and allow us to do um, minting and queuing and secondary market transactions and all that stuff. Um, and, and I think a little bit of a hidden value prop in there too is, you know, managing all the the payment transactions. So Forte has money licenses for, uh, you know, doing crypto transactions, not only in the U S but around the world, it's something that not a lot of partners have. And that's, they're, they're very, on, <laughs> yeah, they're very focused on compliance. Um, which, that's huge. Which does mean that they can be, you know, slower at times than, you know, there's a lot of kind of cowboy wild West stuff that goes on in web three. And, you know, maybe I, I think the lands- that, that's an area where it's kind of a positive that the landscape has changed is sort of, slowed down the timeline. You know, initially we were like, oh, we got to get out there ASAP and, you know, Cowboy is, is more the way to go. But I think now people are kind of looking at, okay, let's, we're playing for the long-term and making sure that we're doing everything above board and complying with, with all the legal, the complex, very complex, ever-changing regulations around the world. So that piece is, you know, can kind of let you as sleep at night as a game developer. Um, so what that looks like is our games will be on like a network studios chain. They'll each have their own project. To- you know, we can have sort of as many or few project tokens as we want. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's effectively a side chain. So, you know, the, the, advantages of, of that are, we are looking to go for more a more mass market audience and we want things to be as simple as possible. So players, you know, in terms of scalability and, uh, uh, gas fees like we're in a uh, it's a highly scalable secure environment that's that's gasless because it's on a on a side chain and we control everything so there's not much the downside is there's not much decentralization there and that also assets need to be bridged out to to mainnet right. or to you know if you want to move them to your own wallet out of your custodial wallet um, right right and i'm comfortable with those trade offs right now because i think the again the the go, to go back to the bass guitar example the the real value proposition is being able to play a game that has tokenization integrated in the game in an authentic way where i can own my assets and that i can cash those out like you know people might argue that that point and i i'm, I'm not saying decentralization isn't important but i think it's kind of a walk before you run thing like like a lot of the stuff i've been talking about um, and obviously we're a company who has not done a mint yet or sure you know, we don't have anything live so we're walking before we run as well not just our our customers Um, so yeah, the theory is that, you know, or the plan, not the theory is that you, you will make a network studios account. It's just an email and a password that silently authenticates you in your custodial wallet. So you hop into the game. Um, you may or may not have to do, make the, the, the account right away. Um, you know, on, on the web, you'll have to on mobile we can still rely on like client ID initially. Um, so it makes the onboarding very easy. There's no, you don't have to be thinking about web three. You know, it can be, particularly for the web 2.5 market, it's like kind of cross those bridges as you get to them naturally in the game. And then, you know, you have that wallet. And if you have, you know, like in Triumph, where the goal is to just let people naturally earn things through the course of gameplay, that stuff just falls into your wallet. You can check it out. It feels like a regular asset. But then if you want to go listed in the secondary market and sell it to somebody else, you can. Um, And even then you don't need to really do much else in terms of, you know, KYC and AML stuff kicks in at certain thresholds for transactions or if you want to bridge out. So if you're just if you're just hanging out in the sidechain ecosystem and working within our own secondary marketplace, it's all it's all very seamless and, and-
1: got it. Interesting. It sounds like they provide like a demonstrable amount of value, right? Um, But I think like one of the questions that I would ask is, you know, like it's really the custodial wallet question is, you know, it's how do these things interact Mm -hmm. with something like Immutable's non-custodial passport they just released or everybody's MetaMask, right? Like what are the hooks that get the people, like, you know, again, Triumph, we talked about, is the product that's supposed to be targeting like the mobile non-Web3 User right, but what about mm-hmm. like your legendary heroes unchained people who are like the D gens who are expecting yeah. to non to have a non custodial wallet that are going to be sort of like forced to go into this custodial wallet world? Like, has there any been been any thinking about how that will work? Um, it's definitely
2: something that's on Forte's roadmap to support other wallets, and you mm-hmm. know, I think that's that's the path. You know, I, I I I it seems like in the space in general, you know, if you look at like. Again, I use Skyweaver before, but the sequence wallet is is really easy to onboard with and there's probably others. I was playing Arc8 the other day and the onboarding is really simple there um, that's probably a custodial wallet but anyway, I think you know everybody's trying to crack this nut of like how do you appeal to both the crypto audience and the and the mass market audience at the same time and it's it's really hard to do both right now so we're kind of picking a lane. Um, but I think over time we certainly would like to support both. And an example on Lhu is that we're actually doing uh, a loyalty pass. This is our free mint and our very first mint for Lhu um, will be. Um, I, I, probably, I should, <laughs> We're partnering with someone, and I won't. I won't front run the announcement here, but we're going to do the mint on mainnet f- because we want to. You know, a lot. A lot of that we haven't talked about free to own mints, but our take on free to own mints is that. Uh, it's a wonderful way to build, you know, some uh, street cred and some some recognition around your project to get people into the project, and hopefully they're people that are, you know, they're either degens or you know, um, people who are just kind of already excited about the project, and you're giving them an asset that, uh, for us, it's a loyalty pass. So you know, Azra Games, Hopefuls Mint, or what Digi Dagaku did. They're, they're more kind of like PFP assets that have... Uh, Champions did something like this, too. that has a bunch of kind of um, other game benefits that go along with it. Ours is just kind of this pure loyalty pass asset, but it gives you special access to us as a developer, you know, in Discord and other channels. It gives you, you know, getting on allow lists for future mints and discounts, and it gives you in-game benefits. So, I, you know, these are all things that our players really want. So getting them into their hands for free hopefully it's kind of helps supercharge your early cohorts of, of your game, um, which is something that's hard to do. You know, we were talking at, at Stanford the other day, like when you're building through a discord, you know, we've got 40,000 plus people in the LHU discord right now, but we know very little about them because the kinds of analytics you have access to are, are very superficial. Um, so getting people to kind of connect their wallets in and, getting people who want this loyalty pass starts to give us the next level of, of read on who's our audience and who's going to actually be paying for um, our primary market sales.
1: Um, Yeah. I I think we could go. Yeah. So we are kind of going around
2: the custodial wallet there just because Mm. we want to get exposure. I I do think that that's, you know, one of those trade-offs you're making by having a more insulated, uh, ecosystem like we're building is, you know, a lot of the, the gens are all, you know, they're all in the centralized, the big centralized exchanges and you kind of, you kind of wall yourself off from those. So we're trying to find ways to sort of have our cake and eat yeah. it too with, with the side chain that we'll be on. Yeah.
1: But it, I think it's also extremely challenging. I mean, I think like you, you know, in, in this free to own concept and some of the games you've mentioned, right, those, those have targeted a specific kind of audience. And even when I think about the Super Bowl ad that happened, you know, you could also pay $6.5 million to get Twitter followers and test your tech mm-hmm. stack, um, which is what Gabe basically did. But there's only 4,000 of those things. And you had to pre-link your Discord and your non-custodial wallets so that when you scan this QR code, you could get a like a dragon or whatever it is. But like, who's going to do that right like it's like um, i was reading an article that like 100% of the people that got this were not were already web3 native right there's 70% mm. were already pro-existing wallets and 30% were new wallets but they're probably burner wallets and so mm. i think you know and, and this is kind of like a interesting like um i guess conundrum where you yeah. know doing one thing targets one group versus doing another thing targets another group and i think it's just very interesting to think about the strategy that different web3 studios are are kind of pursuing. Um, but yeah, in The, yeah, in the, that, the in
2: that challenges that everyone's facing in mobile, they don't just go away because you're in web three, you know, and web three does have a great sort of community that's built by word of mouth and, you know, sometimes by hype in a, in a negative way. But I think in a lot of, in a lot of positive ways around hype too is like getting people excited about what you're doing, how you're innovating, what your game looks like. And, you know, more and more people want to see and potentially play the game before they, they start to invest in it. But it's still incredibly hard like, to build a community from scratch. And we're kind of, you know, I think we've, we have a traditional performance marketing uh, UA team that really has been transformed dramatically in the last six months as we've gotten into partnering with DAOs and working with influencers and building our social media and building a Discord uh, channel and figuring out like how to do interesting, interactive work on the discord. Like it's, it's a totally different approach to marketing and you have to somehow hybridize between the sort of, I guess I'd call that more traditional product marketing that you're doing in the web three space versus the performance marketing you've traditionally done in web two. And I don't know that anybody's like, you know, figured out. out. Yeah. 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 It's it's going to be a battle.
1: Yeah, and then I guess to, to to start beginning to wrap up, I you know, you mentioned you know getting players excited, getting people excited about the game. I want to hear a little bit more about how you've generated enthusiasm for network specifically. You know, today web three is in a pretty tricky spot. It's definitely mm-hmm. gotten a lot more silent than it used to. Um, and I saw like, you know, you to, like, you recently pulled a pretty big hire from Tinder, um, Josh Sell to for to be your guys' CEO. Can you share sort of how this happened and how do you convince somebody to go work at network on a web three game?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I I was I was reflecting on this and kind of shared at all hands a couple months ago that roughly half our company is new because we were about 75 now. We started about 50 but I think there were some people when we made the transition to network studios who had a moment where like, am I in for this new journey into web three and kind of opted out. So that left us with mm. a core of people who are working on the titles that, you know, we had all three titles already in the works when we made the switch to network studios. Uh, and I think all the teams are really invested in their products, which is great. Like it's one of the things I love about the studios just a lot of uh, good kind of cultural vibes around what we're building. Um, you know, I, I've always felt like because product and content making is such a hit-driven business, you have to have good people and good teams and good process, and then kind of rely on the turning of that crank to ultimately output good product. Um, obviously, having good product strategy and, and, and innovative ideas and product are important too, but but ultimately, a lot of it comes down to the just the day-to-day execution and 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 having you know, really well motivated teams. So Josh is kind of a part of this new wave of people that have come into the studio. You know, some people who we hired before the bear market hit that were really excited about web three. And then, you know, I think there's, there's just, you know, frankly, less of those people after the bear market kind of kicked in, but they're still out there and they're people with the longer term conviction in the mm-hmm. space. And, you know, I think there are a lot of people from free to play who also see, you know, the challenges kind of like myself, right? Like they like working at small studios they like games where the development timeline is fairly short and you get to, you know, all of us love games as a service because of the interactivity with, you know, the, the consumer and being able to release updates very, very quickly and getting reads on things very quickly and, and, and being very data driven. So I don't think it's impossible. Like I haven't found, um, a- attracting people to the studio to be that difficult, even in the bear mm-hmm. market, but you know, it's, it's a risk, like. For going into sure. Web three right now, and not everybody has the appetite for a small yeah, sure. startup. Um, Josh, in particular, is somebody I know really well from working together at Glue. And you know, I did kind of a widespread search for. Uh, until Josh joined, I was like the only executive in the studio, and I was like, I really need some help on the executive side. <laughs> I've got too much on my plate. I'm not spending as much time on product as I would like, um, and so you know, it's really just Josh had already kind of. I guess red pilled on the web three space and was working in a web three startup. And, um, I just caught him at the right time where he kind of backed away from his initial startup that he was involved in to, um, become more of an advisor and was looking for something new and was a good fit. And we, you know, again, so much of it is, uh, just getting along and knowing somebody and and working well together. So the way we're kind of doing it is, you know, having two executives, it's nice where, Rather than having a traditional, like, he's the, he's the operations guy and I'm the, you know, the, the strategist. We're kind of splitting it and we're each focusing on one of the two new Web3 games with the rest of the team and then kind of sharing a lot of the operational
1: work together. Mm, cool. So yeah. Nice, thank you for nice sharing point. that. Yeah. Um it's it's just very interesting because I think there's like this duality of motivations that I've noticed in Web three founders. Type one is like Saitama from One Punch Man. Um, if you don't know One Punch <laughs> Man, it's basically like he's so ludicrously strong that he can defeat everything with one punch, and so like nothing <laughs> is arduous to him. And so like that's the first type of Web three founder where they're like, I've defeated everything that has ever crossed my path, and like let me go into Web three and see if I can defeat this thing. And then type two is like the proselytizers, right? Like the panegyrics who are the ideological believers of the Web3 revolution. And so I think it's interesting when you're looking for talent, you know, which pitch do you kind of go with, right? And like the ideological one may have become a little bit more muted in this bear market, but I think that the people that are looking for a new challenge, right, are... It's just a very cool way to say, like, "Hey, here's this red ocean," like you had said in the beginning. Um, sorry, no, here's this blue ocean. We've been in a red ocean. We're going to go to this blue ocean now, and we're going to see what we can build, which is super, super cool. Um, oh, but we're um, jump uh, into
2: the blue ocean with no boat and no
1: no boat, you know, no, <laughs> right, right. no life no map. boat. Swim <laughs> to the <river laughs> and we can um, find. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then as a, I guess as a final closing question, right, you know, you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, you know, you studied Chinese philosophy and I think you mentioned the other day that you actually had intended to become a professor in Taoism. You know, (laughs) is there anything that you actually take from your studies that are guiding principles as a leader today and that influence you in terms of how you live your everyday life and
2: manage a studio? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, thanks for asking something a little more personal and softer because I think sometimes that that does get overlooked a bit and actually does factor a lot into, you know, who we are. I think just in terms of managing stress, you know, I still do a lot of meditation and breathing because being a oh, startup. I have a lot
1: to learn from you. <laughs> a startup
2: <studio laughs> in a really challenging environment. There's some days where I'm like, this is, uh, how's this all going to work? You know, and you mm-hmm. have to sort of, Disassociate from some of that a little bit, and you know, kind of put your head down and just focus on what you can control. Um, it's almost like the, you know, it's a very Buddhist kind of approach to to Web three. It's like, you know, what you know, where can we innovate? What can we control? Like, we don't have unlimited resources. We're just a startup. Like, how do we do the best we can every day to improve? Um, and I think you know, it's kind of helped me over the years. I think I gravitated towards you know, Buddhism and Taoism, because I am a fairly high strung person and I'm really driven and, you know, that's kind of a double-edged sword. Like on the one hand, it, it helps me get a lot done. I can multitask. I, you know, being a generalist who kind of, you know, I kind of know what's going on over here in engineering and I have a sense of the, you know, the metrics and the and I have the strategy. And I'm trying to always be holding all those things together at the same time. It can be kind of exhausting, you know, and you can get yourself in a mode of being a little hypervigilant. So you need to find ways to just like turn it off you know and uh it's valuable for creativity too you know i think i think um especially with remote work i've found that you don't have the walking into the kitchen having some casual conversations and maybe they go off on a cool game that somebody's playing that kind of sparks an idea in your head of how you might take a cool new feature and adapt it to your game like you just don't get any of that you're you're stuck by yourself sitting alone and it's easy to be kind of overly wrapped up in just the stuff that's right in front of you. So like stepping away to pick up the base or go on a walk or meditate or whatever. A lot of times those are the moments where you can have, you know, your most innovative thoughts. So, you know, gaming, you're never going to get away from the art and the science of it. And I think you have to find ways, you know, even as a CEO or, or whatever to kind of embrace the art and the creative and the innovative parts of it and make the space for that.
1: Yeah, so I, I think Matt, that's this it. has been...
2: That's the thing that totally remarkable
1: <laughs> I'm ready to learn i need to mm-hmm. I need to meditate um uh, I I uh, yeah like i'm
2: I'm not an evangelist personality to go back to your last question. I'm much more of like here's what I do, take it or leave it you know and i I feel that's kind of the way I've bring people into the studio too is just to sort of be honest about stuff, and you know hopefully yeah. what we're doing is something you're
1: interested in, but you know, no, if it, you, it's, if you're it's, interested in
2: it's that's a, you know I'll, I'll talk mm-hmm. your ear off if you want. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> no, I took an entire course this year um, called the Managing the Science of the Frinky Human Mind, and it's literally so about managing your inner narrative. Right, mm-hmm. a lot of us manage our external career as well, but managing your inner narrative of like what you tell yourself, how you, um, you know, get yourself through loss or failure is really mm-hmm. important, and it's super critical to the entrepreneurial founder journey. So I think it's yes. actually like it's a having Taoism and Buddhism as a like kind of a foundation from which to begin to lead and begin to, um, you know, build is actually really awesome. But, um, this has been totally remarkable. Yeah.
2: Yeah. A lot of the, you know, the core, really the core teaching of Buddhism is how to deal with suffering. Right. And the fact that we can't escape suffering. Right. And, uh, that's true. You just made that point. It's like, you're going to have failure in your career. And the reality is most startups fail. Right. So, and most games are not successful. You know, you're playing a baseball batting average with games. So learning how to deal with things not working out and, and using that as fuel to, like, do better in mm. the next thing is, is really critical. I, still stro- I definitely still have this expectation that everything is going to be a success. And, you know, it's a constant battle to kind of live with that. Right.
1: Well, gosh, well, thank you all so right, much nice for sharing, yeah. um, learning, learning, learning from, from all the things you guys are building at Network. Um, you know, if there's Web3 talent out there that's interested in Network, you know, how can they get in touch with you?
2: Uh, let's see, I, I'm on the, the Twitters. God, I don't even, I'm not super active on social media because that's one thing that I do to kind of <laughs> keep myself from getting too, uh, too much FUD and doom scrolling and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see, what's the best way? I mean, I'm okay with people reach out to me at my, my network email address, which is just mricchetti at network.com. Uh, you got to figure out how to spell my name and remember the three in, in network to bring it full circle, so.
1: <laughs> nice, well, that means that you need to, it's actually, you're putting in some friction, so you only get the yeah, people exactly. that are really serious. Right. Um, but, yeah. uh, you know, on that note, like, thank you so much, Matt, for coming. Um, this was a fantastic and an awesome interview. Uh, thank you to our listeners, and I'll be back in two weeks. Until next time, friends, feel free to hit me up at at alexandra.novic.co. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, would love to hear your feedback.
0: And with that, um, au revoir. See you next time. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Navic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.navic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, level up your insights with our premium research platform, Novic Pro, or contact us to learn about our wide ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.